Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC senior congressional correspondent Mary Bruce. And I'm ABC News campaign reporter Adam Kelsey. Your ears do not deceive you. We are neither John Carl nor Rick Klein. <laughs> Both of those slackers are off on vacation this week. Can you believe it? Conveniently timed vacation with all the news we've got going on. They just the nerve. The nerve. But it is a very newsy week. We are here holding down the fort, happily so. So let's start a little bit with what's been happening here uh, in Washington and also out on the campaign trail. Let's start here in Washington because even though the president, of course, is uh, now on vacation as well in Bedminster, New Jersey, there has been quite a bit of controversy when it comes to immigration. Controversy and outrage over the president's latest crackdown. Democrats are, of course, denouncing these new rules that, that are intended essentially to make it tougher for legal immigrants to stay in the country permanently if they've used public assistance. So we're talking about Medicaid or food stamps. Uh, the Trump administration, now, of course, says that they don't want low-income immigrants to become a burden on society. The problem is, though, of course, Adam, is that they do pay taxes, right? And according to a, an AP analysis, they use actually significantly less public benefits than, than some low-income native-born adults. Immigrant rights groups we've seen uh, say that, the, the, that this move may mean that, that people refuse public assistance because they're afraid that it might jeopardize their chances of essentially staying in the U.S. permanently. Of course, Democrats have been quick to condemn all of this. And, you know, you're our expert out on the campaign trail. We've also, of course, seen the candidates pouncing on this as well. Yeah, there's a couple different uh, trains of thought here. There are a lot of candidates who are talking about the issue of welfare to begin with and saying that this is nothing that anybody should be ashamed about. When you need public assistance, it's because you're in dire straits and you shouldn't uh, feel ashamed, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're someone who was born in the United States, uh, of getting some help when it comes to your health care, when it comes to putting food on the table for your family. Uh, on the flip side, you know, the other argument is that it goes against everything that America was founded on. This is a country uh, that was built on the backs of its immigrants that, that came over, whether it was in the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, through Ellis Island. And that's something that we've been hearing a lot about in recent days. Uh, the poem on the Statue of Liberty, obviously invoked by Ken Cuccinelli. Yeah. So Ken Cuccinelli, of course, the acting director uh, of Citizenship and Immigration Services, sparked a lot of controversy when he was asked. He actually took to the podium in the White House briefing room, something we don't see <laughs> getting a lot of use these days. And he was asked about, of course, that that famous poem that is on the Statue of Liberty. And here's what he had to say. We, uh, we have a, a long history of being one of the most welcoming nations in the world on a lot of bases. I do not think by any means we're ready to take anything off the Statue of Liberty. Now, the Statue of Liberty, of course, that says that the, that the U.S. welcomes the tired, the poor, and huddled masses, uh, Cuccinelli has a, has a slightly different take. Then, of course, later he tried to do a bit of cleanup on this when he was doing an, uh, an interview with NPR, uh, but he may have dug himself in a little bit further. Take a listen to that. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? Uh, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. You're tired and you're poor who can stand on their own two feet. That's not exactly what's written on the Statue of Liberty. And a lot of people see that as a real distortion, right, of one of America's most symbolic ideals. And also, as you were mentioning, a distortion of 
what this country stands for. It has sparked a much broader conversation than just what this administration is doing when it comes to immigration. Right. That very swift backlash uh, that Cuccinelli got uh, was on the basis of this idea that the reason that people come to the United States is because they're struggling elsewhere. Yes, the United States provides opportunity for those who are already in decent standing, no matter where they're from around the world. But the immigration that we've been seeing, particularly from Central and South America, it's because uh, there are uh, there is violence. It's because uh, the folks who are living down there feel uh, like they can't provide for their families. It, they feel like their children aren't getting education. They look at the United States of America as this this country filled with opportunity. Uh, they go through hundreds of miles of walking, uh, a dangerous heat without food, without water, just to get to the United States. And, and now Democrats really going after Ken Cuccinelli now for uh, his uh, kind of naivete uh, in their minds on this issue. And of course, the question of what does this country stand for? Just one of the many questions that are coming up out on the campaign trail. You spent a lot of time in Iowa over the last week. I was also there over the weekend. Uh, you were trying an array of fried food out of the, <laughs> out of the, out of the Iowa State Fair. We will get to the state of your stomach in a minute. But after spending so many days there, you know, you were talking with voters and also the candidates, what is your sense right now of who's up and who's down based on on your conversations with voters? Well, it's interesting that we're talking about the Iowa State Fair because this is something that's usually the kickoff of caucus campaign season. This is usually when things are just getting started. But feels the, like we've been started for a while. <laughs> my goodness, it's it's been about eight nine months at this point. We had folks who were in this race uh, over a year ago. But what I was hearing at the state fair was a reintroduction by a lot of these candidates up on this political soapbox where we had twenty one presidential candidates from Thursday through Sunday. Uh, many of them were making their pitch to voters for the first time, understanding that a lot of the state fair attendees hadn't heard them before, maybe weren't familiar with their work, whether in Washington, D.C. or at their various state capitals or in their other positions. And they were giving their basic stump speech, saying, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I'm going to do specifically differently than what President Trump is doing. And it's one of the amazing things about the Iowa State Fair. It's why it continues to be a must-attend event for anyone running for president. It is a rite of passage for any presidential candidate. And it's pretty much, you know, one of the only places where as a voter, you can go and do this speed dating, right? You can hear from every single candidate. I was surprised uh, talking with some voters there who said, look, they drove hours just for that opportunity to have the chance to stand there to brave the heat, <laughs> to get a little fried food, but also to hear from every single one of them back to back to back. Because it really allows you to, to do some comparison shopping, right, as a voter. Joe Biden, of course, is the early front runner, and he does cast a very different tone out on the trail these days, right? He tends to talk a lot more about Trump, while all the other candidates tend to talk a lot more about each other. What was your sense in how he's being received by voters right now? I'm glad you said comparison shopping, because I think that's a really good way to portray this. A lot of the Joe Biden supporters I talked to kind of express that they are Joe Biden supporters by default. Mm. He is obviously the name that they recognize the most, having served as vice president for eight years. And they feel like he's got the experience. He sat right next to Barack Obama. He learned on the job. He spent decades in the Senate. So he is the safe choice. But when I'm speaking to those same voters, they can't point to a specific policy that Joe Biden's running on that they like the most. It all comes down to this issue, and we keep talking about it, of electability. Joe Biden is the person 
person that they think will speak to the blue collar voters in the Midwestern states that Hillary Clinton struggled with so much back in 2016. He's the one who can win them back over and win the White House. But they're not talking about him in relation to health care. They're not talking about him in relation to climate change or even in relation to gun control, which was the hot topic for the past week and a half or so. And I spoke to one voter in particular. Her name was uh, Liz Vacciarello. She wasn't from Iowa. She came all the way in town uh, from New Jersey and said that she was looking forward to the Iowa State Fair for weeks, wanted to hear from all of the candidates. And she really did a good job, I think, of summarizing this position, explaining why Joe Biden and even Kamala Harris felt like safe choices to her. Take a listen. When you think about who's electable and who can get things done and who's moderate, um, He's, he's the one who stands out for me. He's got a lot of baggage, and I worry about that. But as I'm a registered Democrat, but I worry about some of the really liberal candidates, like Elizabeth Warren. I try to put my ha- a hat on that says, okay, I say I'm a middle America voter, and I hear Elizabeth Warren and, and, and Bernie Sanders talk, and I think that's exactly what's not going to get elected. That is like catnip for the Republicans. So that's why I like uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, because they can sort of get things done. I think the electability part of things has to do with their policies. Um, I think I don't think you can decriminalize immigration. I don't think you can have health care for all. I don't think you can uh, forgive all student loans. I've always considered myself very liberal, and when I hear those things, even I start to say, whoa. And so Liz there is sort of hitting the nail on the head, right? And this is also an argument that Joe Biden is is very happy and eager to make, which is that he argues over and over and over again that he is the most electable, that he is the candidate with the broadest appeal who can appeal not only to those traditional Democratic voters, but to those voters that delivered Trump the White House. You're talking about, you know, your Pennsylvania, your Michigan, Wisconsin, places where some of the far left-leaning candidates may not have as broad an appeal. And while we've seen, you know, as we saw on the debate stage not long ago, that, you know, there is a real debate over the future of the Democratic Party, how, you know, the moderate versus the progressives. And that's a conversation that is maybe happening a lot here in Washington. But Liz is saying that that, that's also happening, you know, out across the country as well, because over and over again, voters I've talked to, I know voters you've talked to say they simply want someone who can beat Donald Trump. And the, the progressives, Mary, will actually tell you the exact opposite. Of course. First, somebody like Bernie Sanders will say he's just as electable as Joe Biden. And if you look at the polls, he kind of has a point. In those head-to-head matchups, Bernie Sanders does almost as well as Joe Biden does against President Trump. So it's not to say that only a moderate could beat the sitting president. But if you look back in history, liberal candidates tend to have a tougher time when uh, November of the general election year rolls around. But for now, when we're looking at that head-to-head matchup, Bernie Sanders might have a point if he chooses to run on electability. And then we heard from Elizabeth Warren during the last round of debates in Detroit. She actually went after uh, former Congressman John Delaney over this issue. She was basically saying, why are we even running for president? And I'm paraphrasing here. Why are we running for president if we don't want to aim big? And, And in a way, she was responding to that voter that we just heard. If, if you don't think that Medicare for all can get done, free college tuition, decriminalizing immigration can get done, you know, why are we even here? Why, sure. are, why aren't we, why, why can't we try 
And you do have these two tracks, right? Joe Biden and the more moderates are saying, look, we are in some ways the safe bets. We're the ones who can deliver. We can get this done. The moderate candidates, of course, continue to argue, well, they're too safe, right? They're not the future of the party. We need someone who can harness, you know, this desire for change and and run with it. I was also struck out on the campaign trail how there was this really remarkable juxtaposition, especially at the state fair, right? You have on one hand, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of fried food, a lot of carnival games, you know, high fives, taking selfies with supporters, all of that. And at the same time, we saw a very serious conversation about a really hefty topic, and that's gun violence. On the soapbox and on the sidelines of the of the fair, um, the candidates making very clear their pitches for how to tackle rising gun violence in the wake of the horrific massacres in El Paso and Dayton, and also, of course, taking on the president on this issue. It was a uh, an interesting conversation to be having in this setting, but one that, you know, the candidates and Democrats feel is incredibly necessary to be having right now as the candidates try to keep up the pressure on Washington to do something. And I know voters I talked with, even some Trump supporters agreed, look, it is time for change on this issue. And it's an interesting juxtaposition because it's so different than the Democratic debate over something like health care reform. We were seeing a broad agreement, no matter whether the candidate was a moderate Democrat or a progressive Democrat, about some of the first steps that they can take to address gun violence. Something like universal background checks, banning assault weapons, banning high capacity magazines. Even something a little bit more extreme, like a gun licensing program, is starting to pick up a lot of support in this very wide field. And it's not just support on the Democratic side. If you look at some of the polling, this is something that unites Americans like no other issue. In a Quinnipiac poll back in May, 94 percent of responses, no matter their political identification, support background checks for all gun purchases. 63 percent, a majority, support a ban on assault-style weapons. So something that is crossing the political divide, it would seem. And it does seem remarkable. You know, we, we mentioned the debate just a couple weeks ago. They're arguing over, you know, who even trying to distance themselves from the Obama administration, having fierce debates over health care. Guns, of course, is an issue that unites all of the candidates. So now they're trying to distinguish themselves and their plans from each other to, to, to try and set themselves apart, right, to argue why they are the best candidate to tackle this issue. And as you mentioned, of course, we know there is a uh, overwhelming support for a lot of these measures among Americans. Of course, that does not mean that it's any easier to get any of this done here in Washington. We are seeing some movement, though, and we're going to get at that when we come back from a quick break. We're going to be joined by our, by our uh, ABC's Ben Siegel to talk about the gun debate, because he, of course, was keeping a close eye on what was happening on the sidelines of the fair. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined now by our own ABC's Ben Siegel. Ben, you were also out there at the fair, and there were a lot of events happening on the sidelines, we saw this uh, gun forum where all of the candidates came and talked, really passionate, emotions running quite raw. What were your takeaways as you sort of see this debate playing out? Well, that's right. It was a really emotional event. You had all these uh, victims of gun violence, people who lost family members, children to gun violence, asking the candidates questions. And we saw that remarkable moment on stage with even one of the candidates, Andrew Yang, starting to cry when uh, he was questioned about an accidental uh, gun death. So. All these candidates had lots of ideas about how to address gun violence, many of them overlapping, some key differences between them. And that was really on full display over the weekend. So what are the differences? Help us unpack some of this, because there are, you know, a lot of basic ideas that that we know there's a lot of agreement around. Universal background checks, bringing back an assault weapons ban. What is actually the difference between some of these plans? 
I think some of the biggest differences came out when people talked about how quickly they want action and how they plan to get things done if they become president. Uh, you had many of the candidates talking about getting rid of the Senate filibuster, which of course would lower the threshold uh, to pass legislation through Congress. That has been one of the main roadblocks to passing gun control, universal background check legislation in the past. There are some candidates who want to get that done. Uh, there are others who were uh, very concerned about that because they say what goes around comes around. And if Democrats do this, there's nothing stopping a Republican uh, in, in future years in the White House from doing the same thing with a Republican Senate on different legislation. So that's one of the key differences. There was also a bit of a litmus test when it came to Walmart and uh, whether or not the big box retailers should sell firearms. That was something Elizabeth Warren and a couple other candidates, I think about six, uh, were calling on Walmart to stop doing, stop selling some of these firearms. And there was a bit of a lighthearted moment at the event where Michael Bloomberg, the mayor, the billionaire mayor of New York, former mayor of New York, who uh, essentially has bankrolled some of these events and some of the major gun control legislation uh, groups out there. He said he had an exchange with Warren backstage and kind of told her to take it easy on some of these uh, commercial businesses, because if he hadn't done so well in the uh, in industry, they wouldn't all be there today talking about gun control. And now, of course, while all the candidates are out there pitching their plans back here in Washington, the president again is signaling that he's open to taking some steps, that he wants to see stricter background checks. Of course, the candidates on the trail that I talked with, I know you talked with, are quick to point out, well, we've heard some of this before. I did have a chance to ask uh, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren what they make of some of, uh, of what feels like a little bit of a change here in Washington between the president and also Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, now signaling that he's at least open to maybe considering possible changes. Take a listen. Do you believe the president when he says he wants to see some kind of meaningful reforms? I find that fascinating when he says he's going to check with the NRA. Do you get any sense that this time around things are different? I think what you're saying is Mitch McConnell is starting to feel the heat. Democracy is starting to show a little muscle out there. And I think Mitch McConnell's getting just a little bit worried. My view, he ought to be a lot worried. The challenge now is how did these candidates keep up this conversation, right? Congress isn't back for basically a month. And as we've seen, unfortunately, so often after these horrific mass shootings, there is, you know, a lot of energy and effort pushed behind this call, these calls for change. And then it all kind of fizzles. And it's tough, too, because they say we have to beat Republicans at the ballot box to get these things done. But one of the big differences we've seen between uh, gun control advocates and, and, and really strong folks on the Second Amendment is that gun control has not historically been an issue that has motivated mm-hmm. voters to come out in droves and and, and, and knock out Republicans who were standing against background checks. I even spoke to somebody, uh, an activist, who got to question uh, Amy Klobuchar on stage on Saturday. Uh, she has a, uh, it was a, a pretty colorful 76-year-old woman who had a tattoo uh, about, you know, being active and, and, and organizing. And she said she's supporting Kamala Harris, but even she isn't only motivated by gun control. And she's somebody who's, who has started to to uh, to become activated around this. So it's, it's very tough for people to get out there uh, if they want this to happen, to pressure those Republicans to to act. Now, we are also seeing some changes back here, right? Ben, you don't just cover Iowa State Fairs. You also cover Capitol Hill. Yeah, what is job. actually happening? Well, you've seen several competing proposals. You've seen the Democratic House pass these uh very sweeping uh, universal background check proposals. Those are stalling in the Senate. Democrats are pushing Mitch McConnell to bring those up to a vote and even bring back the Senate early. That has not happened yet. And uh, McConnell has no no apparent plans to do so. He's uh, encouraged some Republicans to talk to Democrats and the president to sort of see what they can come up with on the own. But there are some um, differences. We've seen this, as you said, we've seen this movie before with some of the background check discussions in the Senate. The House bill passed by Democrats is a little bit more 
uh, sweeping than what we've seen being discussed in the Senate. So that's one of the key differences we're seeing right now. And it's well, it remains to be seen if that can be ironed out within the month. And it speaks again to the power that Mitch McConnell has as the Senate majority leader. If it were up to Democrats, they would have won back the Senate back during the 2018 midterms. And this could be going a lot differently right now. Chuck Schumer could be bringing that bill to the floor that passed the House. Maybe it wouldn't be quite as sweeping by the time the Senate was done with it, but they could have returned from August recess by now, which is what a lot of these senators are calling for. And they could have taken immediate action. And we we heard from Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders uh, both after they spoke on the soapbox uh, over the weekend, and they both specifically singled out McConnell and said they were ready to get back to work. If Mitch McConnell doesn't call us back to vote on a bill, then when we are elected, I will give the United States Congress 100 days to pull their act together on this and put a bill on my desk for signature. And if they do not, I am prepared to take executive action. Mitch McConnell should call back the United States Senate today. I'll get on a plane and I'll be in D.C. so that we can pass the gun safety legislation passed in the House and do better. Now, of course, that's not happening. Mitch McConnell is not calling lawmakers back here to Washington to tackle this issue. But there are some conversations, it seems, going on, at least at the staff level, uh, between the White House and key players on the Hill to try and see if there is uh, some common ground, especially on the issue of background checks. And of course, what strikes me is different than you, know, you mentioned, Ben, we've seen this movie before. But what's different now is that we are in the middle of a presidential campaign that adds a lot of different pressure and different factors here. You know, on the one hand, you have the president coming out saying he wants meaningful background checks. It's never a good look to, to backtrack. Right. But he also is very acutely aware of the, the interests of his base. You know, he has said he's also been in close contact with the NRA and Wayne LaPierre. So he's got a lot of push-pull factors here as well. And there's also a, a power dynamic that's changing uh, when it comes to the gun lobby. We've seen uh, so many House Democrats, that blue wave that swept over the country in 2018, many of them explicitly running in the suburbs on gun control. And the NRA, uh, for a number of reasons, has sort of lost its footing, whether it comes down to some internal squabbles or also, again, on the defense after the midterms. Uh, that also is a dynamic that comes in play ahead of the election. And of course, you, know, you mentioned Gun control doesn't tend historically to be an issue that, that is at the forefront of people's minds when they head into the ballot box. It's not something that they vote on in the same way that they vote on health care or the economy. But there is some signs that that's changing, too, especially among younger voters. That's right. We've seen the activated the whole, the whole parkland after the uh, shooting in South Florida, all those high school students becoming activists, essentially galvanizing a whole new generation of voters. Uh, who are coming of age now. This is their first presidential election. Maybe they couldn't vote in 2016 when Donald Trump first took office. Uh, That's another wild card that I think we'll see going into 2020. And I think just to piggyback off what you guys were saying about um, what these candidates would do if they took office, uh, it's really hard to imagine any Democrat uh, if should any Democrat win from Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden, it's hard to imagine any of them not using some of their political capital when they take office on gun control. That was something President Obama did not do. And now looking back, I can't imagine there's any Democrat who will not at least try to spend some of that initial capital trying to push some sort of gun control through Congress. The question, of course, is how much can you do, especially yeah. if they don't flip the Senate? And so you hear you know, from all of these candidates, these grand plans, but then a reality sets in, which is that if you don't have, if Democrats don't control Capitol Hill, they're going to face some of the same challenges challenges that Washington faces right now. And, and I've asked the candidates this question, Adam, I know you have too. 
how do you plan to get this done? And, you know, several – there's been a lot of debate about the filibuster, uh, about overturning that so that you can sort of push some of this legislation through. But that's a gamble, too. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about the filibuster because it's an interesting issue that's been uh, creating strange bedfellows in this presidential race, both someone like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders saying that they don't want to get rid of the filibuster. And, Ben, you alluded to it earlier. They're concerned that – you get rid of the filibuster when the Democrats are in charge, and yeah, they can push through some of the legislation that they're interested in. But then what happens four years later? What happens 10 years later? It's going to be this never-ending back and forth. And then on the flip side, it tends to be the outsiders who are calling for the end of the filibuster. Somebody like Jay Inslee, who spent a little bit of time in Congress, now serves as the governor of Washington uh, state, so he's all the way across the other side of the country. He's not there in the day-to-day, in the nitty-gritty uh, on the Senate floor. So he's saying we can get some of this done with just 51 votes why don't we move forward on it? It's clear that I think it's clear to everybody in this field that Washington is maybe not working the way everybody wants it to. But I think, again, to your point, you have to remember, we might not have the Affordable Care Act now if the filibuster was something that was not, uh, if that was something that was eliminated earlier. And that's something that Republicans could have done in this last session of Congress with Donald Trump. So it's a fine line they're going to have to walk. And it'll be interesting to see if any of these candidates who are um, want to get rid of the filibuster move forward to the, uh, the general election. And if they beat Donald Trump, whether or not that, that rhetoric sort of lasts through the duration. Before we go, we have to do a quick uh, whip around on the food because, Adam, you not only were out there talking to uh, every candidate you could run into, you know, polling voters right and left, for some bizarre reason, you took it upon yourself to eat an ungodly (laughs) amount of fried food. Uh, thank you for for taking that on, <laughs> so sure. that the rest of us didn't have to have to do all of that. I enjoy a fried Anytime. Oreo like like right. uh, like anyone, but you took it above and beyond. What was the best? What was the worst? Put on your put on your you know your food reviewer hat here. Well, let me first Give say it this. To straight. Well, let me and first say this <laughs> since I know I'm, I'm feeling okay right now. I was doing a lot of running on the treadmill to try to make up for it. But let me first say this in case my bosses are listening. I was talking to voters in all of these lines while in I was in between waiting. bites of Absolutely. ice cream and and, and right. pork. Yeah, while I was waiting for all of this food. I was you know still doing my job and still reporting. But I think uh, most of the ABC reporters who were out at the Iowa State Fair are in general agreement that the peppermint bar. Was our favorite. It is something like an ice cream sandwich. They give it to you in this big brick. It's this pink peppermint ice cream with a little layer of fudge and some crushed Oreos kind of as the sandwich part. That was unbelievable. That was, that was the sweet favorite. And then on the savory side, the pork belly poutine. So we had some French fries with gravy and cheese curds, your normal standard issue poutine, but then some fried chunks of pork belly on top. That that really got me going. I have to say, unpopular opinion, I don't like peppermint ice cream. What? Ben wow. it, just, it tastes like toothpaste. I didn't. I did not try this. <laughs> I can also also vouch for the peppermint okay. bar brick situation. It was delicious. All right, that is our cue. That is our stomachs growling. That does it for us. I want to thank Adam Kelsey and Ben Siegel for helping us out today. Rick, that slacker should be back from vacation <laughs> next week. In the meantime, thanks to the entire Powerhouse Politics team: Avery Miller, Angie Yak, the great Trevor Hastings. We'll see you next week. <laughs>